0: Hey, this morning, um, we're going to dive into, uh, into chapter two. And uh, if you know, uh, my wife and I, uh, Nikki, have been married for about 10 years. So she uh, tends to round down. I tend to round up. I don't know why. Uh, but we're right at that 10-year mark. And, uh, and it's fun because I can remember all the way back to the beginning. Right, all the way back to the beginning. And uh, so I remember our dating story, and that's a whole other story. Uh, it's fun, so you can ask us about that sometime. We'd love to share that with you. I would love to share that with you. Um and, uh, but then we got this engagement. We got engaged on Mount Sinitas in Colorado, and then uh, you know we planned this wedding and this and this honeymoon, right? Um, and so we, we had to planned to go to the Dominican Republic, and we were really um, and we were really excited, and we were excited to go. We had this this little package with this fun resort. And about two weeks before we were supposed to leave, um, they called and said, "Hey, the resort's being closed for fumigation." And so we thought, well, if that's the truth, I don't want to be there. Um, and so we were like, okay, so what's the deal? They said, well, we've booked you in this other place. And we thought, great, no big deal. They said, here's the number. You can call them and, and uh, get more details from them. So we're like, great, whatever, big, no big deal. Uh, and so, but here's the deal. We start calling, like, every day. And they never call back. The new place. And so, you know, wedding comes, honeymoon comes, and we board this plane having no clue if we have a place to stay or not. Like, we just, we're on the plane, here we go. Uh, here's the thing though, like when you're in the honeymoon phase, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm gonna I'll tent on the beach, whatever. Like, I'll just, you know, like, this is the thing. Like, everything, everything that, the, that your, like, the, your, your now spouse does, even what you find to be annoying 10 years later, which there are some of those, right? It, but in that space, it's like, oh, you are so cute. Like, that's just, like, everything that they do, right? You're so in love. It doesn't really matter. And so we got on this plane, and it's like, I, I don't care. We'll figure this out. Nothing's going to shake this, right? Nothing's going to rock this, and we're going to go. We're going to have a great time. Uh, and, uh, and then I forgot to share this part of the story, too. Like, so everybody was like, just sitting in the first service. Like, what happened? We got there. It was fine. Okay, so they, we got there. <laughs> People came up. They're like, what happened? <laughs> uh, yeah, we made it in. It was fine, and it was great. So, um, but here's the deal. Honeymoons always come to an end, Right? A well, honeymoon is a short phase, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's more, but over time like the challenges and the difficulties of life, they emerge and, and, they, and they gain steam uh, and, and people have to wrestle through these things together and it becomes challenging and difficult at times. And what we're going to find uh, this morning, and you, many of you probably know this, but the main way in which God talks about his relationship between himself and his people, his church, his bride, is through the idea of a marriage, marriage. Marriage covenant. This is who God is, this is who we are, and this is how we are to to relate together, right? Uh, And so we're going to find that we're going to look into chapter two uh, this morning, Um, and and I just want to tell you up front, okay? Because there's two main things here that's at play um, throughout the book of Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah, um, there's two main things that are are happening, right? There's this injustice uh, that God's people are neglecting and abusing the people who have the, the most need, okay? So we'll talk about that later, right, in a different sermon. Uh, and another thing is idolatry, and that's what we're going we're gonna to dive into today in chapter two. But I want to just state up front that there's a tension here, and here's why. Because when we looked last week at chapter one, I feel like we, we, we come out of chapter one and we looked even all the way into Jeremiah 29, like we want to be a church who seeks the welfare of the city, and you leave kind of excited. You're like, man, I want to make an impact in this world. God has uniquely formed me and shaped me. He wants to use me in a way that is unique to his plan, right? And he calls us each to, to do something where we live, work, and play. So each of us has this, and so we leave kind of excited. Uh, and then we get to chapter two. And chapter two is hard because we look at idolatry. And so what we're going to find is that these two things, God's call in our life, is in tension with the idolatry in our own lives. And how we respond to that idolatry will determine how we actually move forward in this life, if that makes sense. So we're going to dive into chapter 2. We know there's this coming judgment. It's it's coming on later in the book. Um, And uh, and the reality is, is that we're going to see how deep this rabbit hole goes as we as we dive into chapter two we're going to see where does this 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 rabbit hole of idolatry really lead us to what is this this real what are the real problems at the core of the human heart uh, and in chapter two um, you can go study this on your own but just for if you like to deep dive into things uh, chapter two is actually reminiscent of in kind of an ancient legal document so um, when a lesser king offended the greater king of whom they submit to and and serve if they offended them whether like uh, in rebellion or something they just did wrong. The, the greater king would send a messenger with a message and it's as if they would deliver this message to the people. Here's the covenant. Here was our relationship. Uh, these were the boundaries and here's everything you did to break them. Right, that's, that's, so, chapter 2 really takes on this form, and you can go look at that in your own, right? But when we think about it applicationally today, as we think about, like, gosh, what would it have been like to be Jeremiah? And we'll see this in the very first verses. What would it have been like to be, to be Jeremiah? Because it would have been so much easier if God said, Jeremiah, here's the message I have for the people, uh, and I here, I just conveniently wrote it on a track for you. You can pull it out of your pocket and just go hand them off to people, and then you can leave, Right? and go, here, here's God's message, I'm out, I'm done. And yet what we're gonna find is that Jeremiah, of all of the prophets, is unique because he has to bear this unique burden because he himself is the message. And because it's such a painful, hard time, he's gonna endure the message, this relational, this relational piece. And so it's really, really challenging as we jump into this. And it starts in chapter two, verse one. Admit, automatically, already it starts, it's hard. He says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. So if you remember coming out of last week, chapter one, we we saw that God basically said to Jeremiah three things. He said, um, wherever I want you to go, I want you to go. Uh, Whatever, uh, to whomever I send you, I want you to go. And whatever I want you to say, this is the things that I want you to say. Right, um, And so automatically we see this this call getting lived out immediately uh, in chapter 2. Right? And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jerusalem. Right, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, Jeremiah is from this small town of Anathoth, which is about three miles north of Jerusalem. And so he would have grown up kind of in the suburbs of, of Old Testament Jerusalem. And he would have seen, he would likely would have been able to see the walls of Jerusalem Jerusalem from his own home, and he would have been kind of in that shadow. And so there's this small little community, and what God says is, I want you to go to the big city. I want you to take a walk. And so he has to walk the three miles. He heads down uh, into Jerusalem, and God says, like, I want you to go proclaim in the hearing. Now, um, here's, the, here's the deal. Like, we don't know where that is. That might be in the temple. Uh, that might be in the town square. We don't really know, but check out this picture. This might, this might help, right? This is a picture of like a model. Uh, this, is, this is not like a high view. This is just a model of New Testament uh, Jerusalem. So you can see in front and center. There's the, the big uh, temple. It's really the focal point of the entire city because of all the sacrifices and the rituals and, and the ceremonies, all that stuff, all the festivals, right? So, But if you see kind of just, just beyond that temple, there's this wall that runs through the city. Um, and so really everything to the left of that is what would have been known 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 as the Old Testament Jerusalem. Okay, and it kind of grew over the years, but in Jeremiah's time, that was Old Testament. Everything to the to the right uh, happens later. It's later expansion. That's New City Jerusalem. But as as Jeremiah would have walked from Anathoth, he would have come. He would have entered in into the north end, this north entrance. Now I want you just to imagine. Just put yourself. Just leave leave this up here and put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes for a moment, because as Jeremiah is walking into the city, he's going to hear the hubbub and the bustle of all of the markets and the merchants. He's going to smell the spices, right? And, and here's, here's what's so crazy about this, is that every single person in this space is totally clueless to what God is about to do. They're just doing life. This is the way that life is, right? Life is great. I'm just doing my job, and here's all this. And they're having fun. There's kids. There's parents. They're laughing. They're running around. And yet as Jeremiah enters into the city, he knows that there's this message from God on his heart. And that's what? Is that soon there will be judgment and destruction. I want you to imagine Jeremiah, this young youth, walking through the streets, feeling the weight of that burden on his heart, that this group of people, many of them will die, and we're going to go into exile. All that joy will be weeping. All of the laughter will be crying. And it's this burden, it's hard. And for many of us, we walked through the doors of this church this morning, right? And we felt a burden. There's something on our hearts. It's deep, it's painful, whether it's in my life or my, a friend's life or, or whoever, right? Something at work, something at home, there's this burden. And Jeremiah, as he walks, we can, we can relate to this, but as Jeremiah walks in, it's a burden for an entire city of people, an entire country of people that God is about to act on. And you go, wow, this would be, whether like wherever, this is the temple or this is wherever, else, this would be a terrifying moment for young Jeremiah to walk into. It's like, picture even just a youth, like if God were to call a youth today to go like stand in the middle of their cafeteria at their school, which is the name a city, terrifying. If God called you to go to the middle of Costco, <laughs> hear the word of the Lord, terrifying right? It's, this is hard. This is really, really, really painful. And what God is doing is that he's going to shift here in this moment. As he's setting up this legal document, he's going to shift it from legal to love. There's this kind of swap in theology here is what's going to happen. Because look at what happens um, in, um, in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, "...grow and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord." I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Okay, So what is he doing? He's referring to a honeymoon phase, isn't he? I remember when we were young, when you and I were in relationship, and guess what? It was really, really good. Like, like I was God, and you were my people, and and this was, and it was right. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. In fact, the word devotion here uh, in the Hebrew is actually the word chesed, uh, which is the word for his steadfast and unfailing love. It's one of the, the closest words that we have in the Old Testament to the idea of grace in the New Testament, right? It's sometimes, when it's referred to God, some rabbis will call the chesed love the ever-bending. But never breaking mercy of God. And so when you when you see it, live down, and you think this is who God is. You're like, wow, this is incredible. And yet what he says is he's talking to the people. He says, I remember your love. And so he's saying this is like this is this was reciprocated, right? There was this, this, this steadfast love between us. And what God had for us, we had for him, and it was this honeymoon phase. But as readers, you sense a butt coming, don't you? Because you're you're expecting and anticipating this question, what happened? What happened? And he goes into it in verse 4. What does he say? He says, hear the word of the Lord. O house of Jacob and all of the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. Now, I want to push pause, because before we dive into that, I want us to understand, because this is, this is super significant, because for us, in our context, we, we see, we see the, the first word in verse 4, here, and we move right on. But for a person in the Hebrew culture and context, hear the word of the Lord, they're going to take immediately, their mind and their hearts are going to jump back in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 6, right? And it's this word, the same word, here hear, O Israel. And it's the word Shema. If you've ever heard the word Shema, and it's the imperative or command, I want you to listen. God says, listen to me. The command is to hear and listen. Hear my word. And then he goes on in Deuteronomy 6. He says, for the Lord your God is one, right? Singular. Right? There's not multiple gods, there's one creator God, and we are designed to be in relationship with that one creator God, right? And then he goes on and says, but you should love him with every fiber in your being, paraphrase. Every single piece inside of you, you are designed to be in relationship and to worship and to obey the one true God, right? And so when you hear this, he says, hear the word of the Lord, they immediately go back and they go, oh man, the Shema, the Shema, Shema, right? Because that's what's happening. And so, as he, he's going to use this as a, as a springboard to talk to his people, because as he asks this question then, he says, you're designed really to be in, in relationship with just me. What happened? Right? Look at verse the end of verse um, 5. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me? Like, what, what, what wrong? Like, here's, here's you and me in our relationship, right? And uh, Israel, or Judah and Israel, they eventually begin to leave this covenant relationship, and God doesn't move. He's right here, the people are leaving, and God's left asking, what wrong? Why? Why did you do this? Why did you leave me? This was really, really good. Everything was going the way that it was supposed to go. And he says, they didn't just go a short distance, they went a far distance. They went far from me, and they went after worthlessness and became worthless. That's a figurative language that's happening here in the text. But the, this, this word literally just means vapor or breath. Uh, it's the same word in Ecclesiastes when he says that, that everything is vanity or empty Right? And so if you imagine, the picture in my mind is this, as I was thinking through it this week. If you were to take a balloon, if you're going to go home and take a balloon, and you blow into the balloon, yes, I know that you're putting carbon dioxide and, and other atoms and elements, and I'm not a science person, into this balloon. But in some way, shape, or form, the more you blow, the more empty the balloon becomes. And it becomes this distended, disproportionate thing that becomes more empty and more empty and more empty. And what God is laying out for these people is that this is the way, this is the way that you're seeking after the things that do not fill. It will always leave you empty over and over and over, right? And here's the subtle warning, as he says though, as it's translated, he says, you will become that which you worship. You begin to take on the identity of the things that you are pursuing in this life. And so whatever those idols, which is what he's setting up the foundation to talk about, whatever those things are, that's the identity that you're eventually going to take. And there's this warning, if you go after worthlessness, you will become worthless. You'll become empty over and over and over. And what God then does, he says, here's what I did. Guys, here's what I want you to understand. This is the way you've treated me, but here's everything that I did for you. I took you out of the land of Egypt, by the way, and then I led you. I led you through the wilderness, which and then he lists off these things, by the way, which is filled with deserts and pits uh, and drought and deep darkness. By the way, it's a land where no one passes through and it's a land where no one dwells. <laughs> right? You couldn't have done this on your own. I took you out of Egypt, I brought you through the wilderness, and then I put you in the promised land. I put you in this space, this this land of plentiful with good things, and it's a space that I intended for you to flourish. And yet what he says is that, and you came in and you defiled it. You came in and you did, you did the opposite of what I wanted for you, right? You were designed to flourish under this good providence, this relationship, this covenant relationship, and yet you defiled the land. And so it's not like, so God's beef with his people is not like that, like they enter into the promised land, they're like, and they, and they make some slight corrections. It says that you didn't go a short distance, you went a long distance. And so it's like they entered into the, into the promised land and they, they swung the pendulum all the way to the other side. This is, the, this is the depravity, by the way, the tendency of the human heart. We will always do this, apart from Jesus, right? We will constantly go after these, these other things. But it's not just that we went far from Him. It's more than that. It's this collective sense of identity. If you look in verse 8, this is actually something that is systemic, and it's going through every strata of, of the people, because he says, "'The priests did not say, where is the Lord?' Those who handle the law did not know me. So the, the people who are supposed to really get it, they don't get it. They don't know me. Right? And then it goes to, all the way to the, to the flip side, to the opposite, which is the shepherds. The lowliest of low people, they transgressed against me. And then you have the prophets, everybody but Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the, the lone guy in this boat, right, who's speaking the words of the Lord in this moment. It's every, every strata of society is doing the opposite of what God ultimately wants. And so when we ask this question, we go back to when when God confronts His people, He says, what wrong did you find in me? The the word wrong in, in the Hebrew, and I know there's a lot of that this morning, so you're not going to catch all this, and that's okay. But and this, but this, by the way, this piece right here, this is this is bad uh, Bible theology. So don't don't think that I'm making this direct correlation. But I want you to remember the word. The word in Hebrew for wrong is the word ah well, which sounds like in English the words oh well. And see what what happens is that there's this attitude that's this being being addressed even in the sense we have to understand right is that these people are so content in their idolatry and in their sin it's as if they're saying meh oh well no big deal. Right, no big deal. It's it's really not that big of a deal. And yet what God is saying is that it's a huge deal, actually, and it breaks my heart. And therefore, it says in verse nine, he says, in some of all of this, he says, Therefore, I still contend with you. I know that we had a good time, a good like a good honeymoon, but that has ceased. And I, have, and I contend with you. It's like God is bringing His people into the, into the law, uh, into the courtroom, and He's saying, this was the covenant, this was the boundaries, and as you unroll the scroll, it's like you can read and read and read and read all of the things that God's people have done to disobey, to break that covenant, and God says, like, I contend with you. This is a big deal. It's not just a simple thing. It's a very big deal. In fact, he ends this, he says, declares the Lord. Again, this is God's decree. This is This is who I am, and this is what I am saying. And again, not direct context because Jeremiah is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and here we are today. And yet, there are some of these direct overlays and patterns that are coming out of Jeremiah into today's world, right? And God like, I can contend with people. And he says, by the way, it's not just you. He says at the end of verse 9, he says, it's with your children's children I will contend. And it's not. Don't get, don't get this wrong. God is not saying uh, that you're, you're so bad that I'm just going to punish for generations to come, right? That's not what's happening. He doesn't punish people uh, for things that they didn't do, okay? So what's happening is that there's, there's multi-generational sin. So parents, uh, they're born, they live, right, and they have these kids. They're living a certain way, uh, and their kids begin to adapt and live a certain way. Then they have kids, and what happens is that they begin to adapt and live a certain way. And what God's promise here is as the people is that I will contend with anybody who is in this frame, of mind. Because you and I, as a people, are not in right relationship. And that's what his whole point is. And I will be in contention with you as long as that's the case. Because there are these idols in their hearts. And so this is the problem. Okay, he lays this out. He's going to give us just detail out the problem of just a little bit deeper for us. Look at verse 10. He says, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? So so what God is saying here through Jeremiah is he says to the people, "Um, hey, by the way, go take a survey of the known world and ask them, have you ever changed gods? Yes or no? What are they going to say? No. Because this is unheard of. The the people don't do this. They have gods, they stick with them. And yet what God says is that, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. It's like Paul, thousands of years later, steals from this in Romans 2, right? And what does he say? We exchange the glory of our creator and we exchange it for the created right? And that's what's happening in in this, right? And so what God says is like, guys, this is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. And then he calls all of the heavens to bear witness against his people. And he says, be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And we begin to see that this rabbit hole goes a lot deeper than what we want it to, doesn't it? God isn't relenting in this, at least in his truth. He keeps going and keeps going, and he's going to show us the real depth of this, this painful reality in our hearts. Right? In fact, he lays it out very clearly for us in verse 13. He says, for my people have committed two evils. The first one is this. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Okay, so uh, context here. Remember where they are. They're in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel, which is a dry and arid desert climate. And so water is the most valuable thing for your family, for your crops, uh, any of those things, right? Fresh water, super important. Now, here's what's interesting, is that just outside the eastern wall of Jerusalem is the spring called the spring of Gihon, and out of the spring, right, like water's bubbles, it's, it's constantly going and it's flowing and flowing and flowing. In fact, not long before this king named Hezekiah, right, knew how valuable this was to the safety of their city, and so he built a tunnel underneath ground so that the water would flow from one end to the other and inside the walls of the city for safety, right? which is, just so you know, an incredible feat of engineering because they started digging on both sides, and they met in the middle, and there's only like a few inch drop from one side to the other. So it comes out of the spring, and it rolls underground, through, through ground, like 20 feet underground, and all the way into the walls of the city. It's incredible. And so what God is laying out here is he says, just imagine people in the city of Jerusalem coming to the to the, to the Pool of Shalom, uh, right here, and you look at all this fresh water coming from a spring, this constantly, never-ending, flowing rush of pure water, and you look at it and go, cool, no thanks. In a dry, arid climate, this is unheard of. This is, this is baffling. This is so bizarre. Why would you ever do this? The other option is, instead of a fountain of flowing waters, is to build a cistern. And a cistern is kind of like an underground water bottle, right? Because the other way to gather water is from fresh rain. And so as fresh water would come down, they needed a way to collect it. And so what they do is they dig right through the ground, they would get to the rock, and then they start chipping away at this rock, and they would just build kind of this massive underground like, circle, oval. And then and actually we have a picture here so this is from a, from our time in israel and you can see right the the bottom is a little sedentary and and then up on the top you have the rock and the way it's it's chiseled and carved out um, and then on the sides, you see this kind of gray matter. And it's because what they would do is they come in with plaster. And they would plaster the insides of these cisterns. Um, and the idea is it's kind of like waterproofing, right? Uh, because water will naturally seep out. And so they would kind of waterproof it. But you can see, like, it's, it's fallen down over time. Eventually, plaster cracks. And so what God says of his people is this. He said, by the way, so here's the deal. You're, you're, you're neglecting, you're forsaking that there's a fountain of living waters right here and instead what you're doing is you're doing this. You're shoveling and shoveling and shoveling and plastering and plastering and plastering and you're doing all of this. By the way, in the end, what's going to happen? The plaster is going to crack and all of that water is going to start to dissipate and go out. And it leads you just again into that imagery of emptiness and vanity because it's constantly dissipating. It's constantly disappearing, right? Those who go after worthlessness will become worthless, right? They will hold no water. And God is, is laying the foundation for idolatry, right, with this idea of cisterns. You've forsaken me, and you've dug cisterns. You've gone into emptiness. You've gone into vanity. It's toil and effort, and it's just... And It's not a fountain of living waters. And so when we think about idolatry, because that's what he's laying the foundation for here, right? When we think about idolatry, we think of idols. And idols are these small kind of wooden carved images that people bow down to. Um, Maybe it's it's more complicated than that. Maybe it's the Greeks and Romans and they have their marble statues. Um, But the idea is that these people worship them and they bow down to them. Now, if you and I were to read about idolatry in the Old Testament and think about that in, in today's world, right, we're going to dismiss it pretty quickly because I, I highly doubt that anybody is going to go back home and watch football this afternoon and do this, you know, or to our TVs or to our homes or to whatever it is. We don't do that. And so we're going to dismiss it because we think that's irrelevant. We don't have idols. We don't do that. But here, let me, let me put this, this framework for us. Uh, the more simple the culture, the more simple the idolatry will be, which is where wooden carved things come from. But the more complex and advanced cult, the culture, the more advanced and complex the idea of idolatry becomes. And that's incredibly true in the world that we live in. And I, want to, I just want to make this point, because I think this is helpful. There's three words I want to give you. One is the word jealousy. Uh, jealousy, I learned this in seminary in one of my um, counseling classes. Jealousy is the fear of never attaining, or excuse me, jealousy is the fear of losing that which you have already attained. So we, out of the sense of need, we grab and and take and build these things in our life over and over and over, and we take them, right? And when somebody else or something else enters into that sphere and threatens the fact that I might lose that, it, it raises this emotional anger in me, and I fight for those things because I don't want to do life without them. And so you go, okay, do you see idolatry at play here? How many of you guys have ever had a jealous thought? Oh, idolatry. Um, In other words, the idea of envy. Envy um, is similar, it's akin, but it's it's different, right? Envy is the fear of never attaining that which we hope for. So we see it in other people. We go, man, that person drives that car, they have this job or that status or X amount of whatever, that girlfriend, that boyfriend, that kind of marriage, right? And we, we long for it and we need it, and so we fight for it and we scramble and we move towards it. And we're constantly building this emotion inside of us that's similar to jealousy, right? It's just built out of fear. And so for both of these, we go, gosh, do you see idolatry in these things? Do you see how American culture <laughs> is built off of these things? Right? This is this really, really powerful stuff. It's hard. Uh, and in the, in the New Testament, Paul, uh, both of these things are stem from a need of, uh, from a, from a a place of need and want. And the Bible really describes that as this need or this greed or covetousness. And so we don't have it on a side, but in Colossians 3, Paul identifies all greed in its own category. Greed as a whole, he says, is idolatry. And so you go, gosh, this is, our, this is, this is the life that we live in. And we begin to see the rabbit hole goes much deeper than we want it to, don't we? And it's challenging, it's painful, uh, and, it's, and it's, really, it's really a hard thing for us to, to think through. Um, I was watching a YouTube video uh, this last week um, of like a kind of a documentary on ad lib humor in movies, and this guy is talking about his most recent one of his most recent movies, which is on Netflix called Don't Look Up, and it's about a meteor that's coming towards Earth, and the projection is that it's going to hit, it's going to be cataclysmic, and it's going to be it's going to wipe out all of humanity, and it's at the end of this is that they begin to realize that this is unavoidable, uh, that one of the characters in in a prayer over national TV says this. He goes, he goes, I'm gonna, and I'm going to paraphrase because there's bad words in it, okay? Um, so, he, just paraphrase. He says, there's a lot of prayers going out right now for other people. And you know, and I want to commend that because that's good. But there's also a lot of good stuff. I mean, like material stuff in the world, like sick apartments, um, watches, and cars, and clothes that, that can all go away. And the reality is, I don't want those to go away. So, I'm going to pray a prayer for that stuff. Amen. Here's the deal, that was not scripted. (laughs) It was all ad-libbed. and so you begin to see the extent of how systemic this is, that in in an ad-libbed moment, that this is what someone would even, even jokingly, pray for, right? And we begin to see how systemic this is. Guys, our hearts, our idol factories, you've maybe heard this before, right? They're constantly producing over and over and over. They're building and building and building their own idols. if it's not clear yet, an idol, I think, is this. An idol is something that is so central to my life that if you take it away, it will rock your world. And you'll begin to ask questions like, gosh, life is just not the same. Do I really want to do life without that? Like running water, toilet paper. Weird things, right? It's just simple when, when it comes down to it, right? Just simple, like bizarre things. Like there's these things in our life that we don't want to do life ultimately without, Martin Luther said this about idolatry. He said that um, whatever I expect to provide all good in which I take in all distress and whatever I set my heart on and put my trust in, that's my true God. And here's here's the reality, is that you and I do this far more in our life than we realize we put a lot of things, we put our trust in a lot of things over God if we're we're really honest. And it's not just sinful, evil, like discouraging, like negative things. Like we could list through all those, that would be really easy. But there are a lot of good things in life, right? Because God designed us to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. He is designed to sit on the throne and he designed all these good things to supplement that relationship. And yet what we can do is that we can take a good thing that God created and we can supplant God and put that good thing on the throne and we can worship that and that's where it gets really really tricky it's because we think that we're doing something good and we're longing for something good but what we remiss and realize is that God is no longer at the top of the food chain in my heart Tim Keller says and wisely so that whenever a good thing becomes an ultimate thing it ceases to be a good thing it's like as soon as you put like so like like here's the deal like Knowledge of God's word could be an idol. Church could be an idol. Your marriage, your daughter, your, your family, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your school, right? All these good things. Guys, I am in like data mode at home with Eden, and it is adorable. It is awesome. Everything is data, I want to sit on your lap. Data, I want you to do my bedtime. Dada, I want you to do swimming lessons with me, even though it's all ladies in the pool. Like I want you. And, I, and it's so great, and guys, it is so hard for me to not poof, do this and make her the center of my world, because what she needs to know moving forward is that she's not the center of my world. The center of my world has to be and always will be, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, above all. That is the reality of what we're, what we're in front of, right? We need grace with these idols big time, especially when the idols are good things, Right? And so we have to understand why this is so incredibly significant, guys, because this breaks the heart of God, right? Just over and over and over, guys. And it's not because laws are being broken. Uh, The Covenant laws are being broken all the time in this room right now. Covenant laws are being broken. That's not the main problem. The main problem is a relational problem that we've created this massive cosmic swap and we've exchanged the glory of our creator for the created. I I love this, uh, and I just want to say this once because, and you write it down, and you can ask me afterwards, but I don't want to dwell on it, but this is super powerful. There's a guy named G. Campbell Morgan who said, people will be faithful to those gods who make no demand on them that are out of harmony with the desires of their own heart. I will follow over and over a God who says, I'll give you what you want. Make, make no quarrels about that. Guys, this is really challenging. We just came out of this fall. We studied through Ephesians, and it's this powerful letter, and it's really all around love, that you and I can experience the depth of God's love in a way that surpasses knowledge. It's incredible, right? The height, the breadth, the dip, and depth, and the width. And you go, this is love, right? And, yet, and you exit out of that, and you're like, this is crazy good. And then you get to Revelation, and God says, I have one thing against you. Ephesus, people of Ephesus, that I'm no longer your first love. You see, you, the honeymoon is over, the love has grown cold, and we've supplant God with other things. And the picture here, as we just wrap up really quick, the picture here is he says, for long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. It's this intensive action. And as I think about, like, even with something small, like a little wooden stir stick, you break it, and it has this crisp, crisp-like sound. And now these two intensively have been separated. And God says, this is what I did between you and Egypt, right, is I broke those. And yet, I oftentimes think that our view of what God has done in our lives is maybe this thick. And then I'll, I started thinking about like Barry Bonds or, you know, like somebody who's, who gets frustrated and, and takes a bat and you want me to do it? No, I won't do it because I'll break my knee. Um, but this idea, like they snap this over their knee and what it does is it's this intensive snap and crack and it bursts and it, and it breaks this bond and it creates two separate pieces that can no longer be brought together, right? And this is what God said. I did for you. I burst those bonds. I snapped them in front of you, and yet your response with me was, I will not serve. And then God shifts from the idea of immorality and adultery. It's not just this legal thing. Right? And it's not just that, that God says we were in a covenant relationship. And it's not that it's just that you are leaving me for, for another spouse. He says you're leaving me for multiple spouses. So it shifts from adultery to prostitution. And this is what he says. It's just painful. Just painful picture. He says, yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. This is the imagery and, and it's an it's a action that breaks God's heart, and guys, it should break our heart. It should break our heart that this is the way that God's people were described, and, and the people have the audacity to say, but we're clean. We didn't do anything. And God says, guys, no, not true. Look at your life. The way that God describes his people, moving forward in that chapter, he says, you are like a female camel in heat, and you will run to whoever and to wherever you can find what you're looking for. Who can stop your lust? That's the image that he gives us. And yet in chapter three, he moves on and he says, but guys, you can repent. If you would just come back, if you would just repent, I will not be angry forever. And so when I think about bursting bonds uh, and this idea of intensive actions, guys, there's no way that we can end this chapter and not think about the cross because it's not just this and it's not a wooden bat it's like god it's like jesus in his life death and resurrection he ripped up the biggest redwood that he could find right that represents all of our bondage to sin and death and and snapped it and created freedom and yet we choose to go back to our idols we choose to say oh well not a big deal and we and we shame in some sense the blood of jesus i do when I do this and I forsake God in those things. And it's a sobering reality for us to consider that anything in our life, especially the good things will be placed in front of God, like our family, our works, our jobs. But here's the deal, guys, the cross demands that we examine these things. And here's the tension, because last week we, we ended with this positive example. Man, we're like, we are uniquely formed. We want to come out. We want to make an impact in this world, right? We're excited about that, seeking the well of the city. And yet here's the tension, is that there's this deep idolatry in our life that fights against it. And what keeps us from fulfilling the mission of God is oftentimes the idols in our hearts. And so how we respond will determine how we move forward. I want to ask, I want to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to sing one final song. And it's the song, uh, No Longer Slaves. And it speaks perfectly to the sake of the gospel, uh, who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf. Um, and so I want you just to rejoice in the grace, right? If God, if God kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? <laughs> No one, right? We all have idols, myself included, maybe more than you. I don't know, right? But the reality is that God's grace and his cross meets us right where we are and provides freedom, and it's how we respond that directs how we move forward. So I'm going to give you these three things as I challenge you, and we're going to give you just a few seconds to self-reflect before we sing. The first one is this. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Where are your broken cisterns? Where have you forsaken God? What have you been going after? Just allow the Spirit to speak to you. The second is just examine the cross. Put it in light of who Jesus was and what he accomplished for you and the grace and the forgiveness that is extended to you if we repent. And the last one is that we've said that we want to invite you guys to participate each week uh, in in, uh, praying for a new group of people in our city. And today, this week, because of the idea of idolatry and the message that this is to us, I want to invite you to pray for our churches, Salem and everyone, uh, for the sake of purity in this world that we would love God more than anything else. Let's take a moment and we'll sing.